the third day. He said it as plain as day, but isn't it like human beings <laughs> to not hear what we don't want to hear, to miss it, even though it's been said many times over? And so their emotion, they were just raw. They, Jesus was pulverized. He was pounded. Think of this. We believe, the Bible says, and we believe what the Bible says. The Bible says that, that Jesus is God, and God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for eternity. And, and, and he made a plan to create this entire universe, to create you and to create me, and all the amazing molecular complexity of his mind game, mind reality. And the sovereign God sends his son to die for this, our sin, what we deserved. The wages of sin is death. We were having a discussion this morning. I love it. My kids ask these great questions all the time. And one of my kids this morning on the way in said, Dad, um, this list of uh, the seven deadly sins, is that from the Bible? And I, my first response is, well, you know, yeah, I think so. I mean, in Proverbs, it says there's six, yea, seven really bad things <laughs> that you should avoid. But then we got to thinking about it and realized that phrase, deadly sins, is um, basic, honestly, it's a misnomer. You know, that means when you call something by a name that is the wrong name, because it begs the question, okay, which sins are not deadly? <laughs> you know, and the problem is that's an empty set. All sins are deadly. I mean, even as it seems so trivial to us, some kind of fruit, they ate the fruit, but it was disobedience. Disobedience to the Creator. So, the story is, uh, the reality is, Jesus comes, becomes part of his creation, mind-boggling mystery. How could that be? He does it, and then he, he suffers and dies for the wrath of God. For, because of God's judgment, Jesus suffers. He takes the judgment for us. And, and here's actually one of the points I'm trying to drive at here. He could have chosen any millennia to do this. Any time in space and time. Any way he could have chosen. I mean, that's what the definition of God is. You set the plan. You make it. You do whatever you want to do. I mean, there's a psalm that says that much more pleasantly. It says, he, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Okay? That's the reality. That's the nature of God. That's what, if, if there was a dictionary definition of God, it should have no picture. And it would say, the one who is sovereign, who does what he pleases. And honestly, I'm just asking this question. Why, oh why, oh why, oh why, would he choose the Greco-Roman culture uh, at, you know, a date we call 0032, uh, you know, really, the Romans were, they had this horrible, brutal execution process. And, and the Jews could 
manipulate them, and, and you know, they were the law, they could do whatever they want, and they, they, as I said, pulverized Jesus. He lost so much blood in the beatings. He was so weak. And then we talk about, we have this cultural debate, right? Should we execute people? Should we not execute people? If we do execute people, should we do it in a uh, way that is, what's the word? Not cruel and unusual punishment, right? And let's put it in a sterile room with a white sheet, and give them an injection that will stop the pain of the injection that will kill them, and hopefully if we do it right, they're dead in a few minutes. Um, that's not death on a cross. Jesus hangs, hangs on the cross uh, about six hours in horrible, writhing pain. And he dies, and his, uh, his followers are equally pulverized emotionally. They're just wiped out. They can't even be there. There's this cadre of women. Thank God for the women who have the real strength. You know, who's, who, they're there, and they are faithful, and um, they're wiped out. And so you have to understand that. I think if you try to understand, well, why did they respond the way they did? It was just all so brutal and horrible and, and from their point of view, un, unexpected. So I want to look at the Scripture in John 20 today. John 20, I'm preaching in John, but I'm skipping over several chapters to get to this text for Resurrection Sunday. But probably, if the Lord allows... In eight months from now, we'll come back to this passage, and all of us will, will have forgotten whatever I said this morning by then. So. <laughs> um, and I really want to look uh, at John chapter 20, and I want to just look at, well, I'm going to look at verse 1 right on through uh, verse 18 this morning, verse 1 through 18. I will read the text. And then we'll look at uh, some of the highlights of this narrative. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That sounds a little awkward, but that's the way John, the author, describes himself. As he's, I think he's just sort of being humble uh, in the sense that I don't want to just say, and me. He's saying, you know, the guy who had the really, really close relationship with Jesus, who was leaning next to him at the Last Supper. Uh, we, he was the closest one. He was the youngest disciple. Okay, enough narrative on that. Uh, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, and here's Mary, again, pulverized, shocked, and now this, and she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. <sighs> so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping 
to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She, excuse me, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, in your kind grace, open your word to our hearts this morning. Oh, Father, work through your spirit. Uh, I acknowledge that only you can build a house. Only you can teach your word. And so we depend on you, oh, Father, only you. Thank you for this beautiful dependence on you. Thank you for the resurrection from the dead. We pray that you would raise us up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got an amazingly, amazingly complex outline today. It's, it's who, what, and why. Sounds like journalism class 101, <laughs> except I've left out a few of the questions. But first of all, the, notice, notice the strong setting that John records for us. It's really about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. That's the person whom he focuses in on in this text, isn't it? What do we know about her? 
Well, it's surprising. We don't know a whole lot because if you've been reading John, here she pops out. We didn't know of her before. But there is some little information about her in the Bible, very specific, and it is potent information because it says this. It's in Luke and in Mark. It says Jesus cast seven demons from her. Now, just pause and mull that over for a second. What is that? Here's a lady. Honestly, if we ever met her in her previous condition, we'd be scared to death. She's the kind of person that's walking down the sidewalk, that's filthy, that stinks to high heaven, and is, is just screaming at herself or at the world. You see those folks all the time. Um, I drove through San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and it seems like the big cities, we were right, we were right down Fisherman's Wharf and uh, all the piers down in there, and, and there were lots of homeless people, and some of them, one guy was standing on the corner just yelling, and, and you know, what did I do? I didn't go up to him and say, sir, can I help you? I, maybe I should have, maybe I'm being too honest here, but I just, you know, sort of stayed in my lane and kept going, right? And this is Mary Magdalene, and, and it says seven demons. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny, but one demon is overwhelming. But two demons, these things come in, in big groups. You have one life-destroying issue, and it breeds other life-destroying issues, doesn't it? You're not only am I poor, but I'm a single mother. I'm speculating. We don't know if she had any children or not. But imagine her with seven demons. She's been cast out. Her family can't stand her. She, well, she's crazy, and she's amazingly obnoxious. And she's so self-centered. All she ever does is talk about herself. She's overwhelmed. She's scary. She totally has maxed out all of her resources, and she's absolutely hopeless. I think that's what this is about. Here's a woman who was absolutely hopeless by human standards. You know, we, we would put her in a, a state hospital. And, and so here Jesus comes and saves her. He cast out seven demons, and she's radically, wonderfully changed. She believes she receives the gift of the power of Jesus. She knows the power of Jesus, doesn't she? Isn't it interesting how she's the one in John's gospel, the one, the one, the one who's most loyal to Jesus? She realized what he had done for her. And another way to put that is she was a faithful follower of Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn quickly to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 30. Matthew 15, 30. It says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. 
and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's one of these summary verses. There's several of those in the Gospels, and it, it communicates that he's literally healed thousands of people. The whole countryside had been affected by him, and thousands of people had received his grace. How many struggled out to the tomb that morning? The other Gospels tell us that there were a couple of other women with Mary, but John wants to focus in on the main actor, Mary Magdalene. I wonder, are you a faithful follower of Jesus? Or in the rough times, you're the one that falls off. There's something to be said for somebody who shows up. <laughs> she's there, and she's going to be rewarded richly. This sermon is because she showed up, you know. She was willing to be faithful to Jesus even when she didn't understand what in the world was going on. She was still there and faithful. Who? This is about a lady named Mary, mainly. And now I want to look at what. what what's going on? The, by the way, this is my simple idea. The Bible tells us who the actors were, and, and it tells us what went on. But the beautiful thing is, it really focuses in on why it happened. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand the whys of things. Why do things happen? Uh, it's, it's, about, it's a theological education. Why do these things happen? So, but we're going to look at the what. I, I don't want to take a long time on this. I'd, I'd love to, but uh, we want to move on with life. Uh, <laughs> The, the what here, I have, it, I have it in two slides, very, very brief here. First of all, Mary reports a problem. You know, I, I hate to say it, but Houston, we have a problem. You know, it, uh, she's there at the tomb. She comes up with a theory, a, a hypothesis, that she's going to hold on to for a little while, right? She's even going to report it to the angels. Somebody's stolen Jesus. They took Jesus. They thought they could... Wipe us all out by breaking open the tomb somehow and taking him away. And she immediately runs. She knows where Peter and John are, and she tells them they've taken Jesus. And so then we have this uh, fun little foot race that uh, John, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of, uh, you know, king of the hill here going on. because he, he says, we were both running together, and of course I outran him. Yeah. <laughs> Peter was probably uh, a few pounds heavier than John, and, and maybe 20 years younger, older Peter was than John. Um, and, but, but Peter, he's the guy who's always doing wild stuff, right? In fact, in a, in a couple, of, uh, couple of days, they're going to be out fishing, you know, in the boat. And uh, it's one of those ones where Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side. And they go, oh, well, whatever. So they do, and they catch 153 really big fish. Remember what, what the story tells there about, about Peter? 
he was he was half naked he had you know just his speedo on and and he th- he threw his outer garment on and then jumps in the lake <laughs> you know and all the other guys are going oh well what's he doing you know he he jumps in and, and he's impetuous and so this comes through peter comes rushing in bolting in right into the tomb and looks around and and what he sees it, it doesn't add up to a, a body theft he sees the linen cloth that was wrapped around his body kind of rumpled up or something set there or maybe Maybe Jesus came right through it. I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm not going to speculate on that. Uh, but, but then the weirdest thing is, the head cloth was in a separate place, and guess what? It's folded up. Now, I'm asking you, what kind of a thief would do that? Let's steal the body, but first, let's unwrap it. <laughs> and you take the head cloth off of his pulverized head, <laughs> his gory wounds and carefully fold up the cloth and then we'll get out of here yeah impossible not not gonna happen now peter the other gospels say he left wondering he doesn't get it something happened here it's weird i don't understand it but something happened but uh, so that I, I put it this way, this is just what happened. The linen and the face cloth are confusing. But of course, John records that he understands. So uh, John's whole gospel is, one, what was one of the theme words? Believe. Remember, I've been preaching that faith has to be a present tense verb. Because so many times he uses it present tense. Are you believing? Are you following? Uh, he says, Jesus said, my my disciples, if you're truly my disciples, you will abide in my word. You'll be like Mary, sticking it out, working through the hard stuff, not copping out when it gets super tough. And, and so John loves this word belief, and he is here, and he believes. It says, verse 8, then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, <laughs> also went in, and he saw and believed. Yes, that's true. And I think he believed that Jesus rose from the dead at that moment. I mean, what else would it believe? What else would it say? Uh, that he believed a thief stole the body? No. He believes in the resurrection, but he's still pulverized and in shock. I think there's nothing wrong with the fact that he doesn't tell anybody else at this point. I mean, I kind of wish he had. Uh, but he doesn't, but I think we have to understand what they've been through. It's been horrendous. It's just Friday that Jesus was writhing on the cross, and they're in deep sorrow, deep pain, and yet he believes there's a ray of hope. He understands what it means. Now look how John the author gets back to the person he really wants to focus in on, and that's Mary Magdalene. Mary, remember, has run. She's gone from the tomb, which she found disrupted, ran into the city or wherever Peter and John were living. They had separate houses. Interesting fact, right? Who was staying with John already at that point? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because on the cross... 
the point is made, uh, Jesus says to John, this is now your mother, and Mary, this is your son, John. And it says, from that hour, he took her into his house. So I just think that's an interesting sidebar, that when he goes running back to the house, you know, his head's spinning, he believes, but he still can't put two and two together quite. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, in the house with him. I don't know what happened there. What was the conversation? It would be interesting. But Mary Magdalene won't give up. She goes back. She goes back to the tomb. She's still devastated, not understanding, still emotionally pulverized, but she thinks this is the right place to be. She's right. What? She has not given up. She has not given up. And, and she's asked twice why she weeps, isn't she? First the angels. First she, I mean, look, look what it says here in the text. Um, verse 11, and as she wept, so she's weeping the entire time, she's distraught, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels. Now, some people want to make a big point of like, okay, why didn't Peter and John see the angels? Hey, angels come and go as they want to, okay? Are you going to tell them where the angel? You stand there, angel. No, do whatever you want. Yeah. You stand wherever you, you take any clue, any cue to get on stage. Uh, that's your time. And I think that's basically it. The angels were not visible for Peter and John, obviously. Uh, God did not want them to see them. But the angels are visible to Mary, but it doesn't even make any uh, impact on her, really. She's so numb, she's so wiped out, that all she's focusing in on is, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? My Lord, he's been taken somewhere. And so they say to her, why are you weeping? Jesus said the same thing to her, right? In verse 15, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You know what's the background of those questions? Jesus did this a lot in his ministry. He would reprimand people. He said, oh, you of what? Little faith. He said that to Peter like minutes after he walked on water. Uh, excuse me, I just walked on water? In my book, that's a lot of faith. <laughs> but Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. What's the point of this? God has high expectations for his followers. He wants us to believe him, to be people of informed faith, active, real faith. You know, that tugs on me a lot because I don't think I'm there very much. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? You should have known. You should have trusted. You should have believed the word. And it's, it's not a reprimand like, I want you to feel bad about this. But it's saying, I want you to move through this and get out of the weeping to see what, what's going on here. So she's asked twice why she's weeping. And Jesus calls her by name. Isn't this the beauty of this, what happened? Um, Jesus said to her, verse 15, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. You know, she doesn't even see him. She kind of looks in his direction. Honestly, friends, there's no problem with that. 
if you've ever worked with grieving people at all, they, they're like walking zombies sometimes. They, they don't even know what's up or what's down. This is, it's numbness. And she's absolutely numb to her environment. She can look Jesus in the face and not truly recognize him at this point. So she supposed him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. It's kind of a beautiful thing she says. You know, it's hard to imagine that this Jewish woman would come to this beat-up body that she knows doesn't have any clothing on it, and she's promising to take it, take it away. You know, I, you know in other words, what she says doesn't really make much sense, but it's, it's her heart. I want to protect Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus said to her, this is the beautiful part, Mary. She turned. At that moment, she understands. She says in Aramaic, that's the language that they spoke uh, together, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary, Jesus calls her by name. Jesus calls his sheep by name. He knows us all. Earlier he'd called Lazarus, come forth. He knows you. He's calling you by name. He wants you to hear his voice and come to him. And then there's this interesting thing of what happened next. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Probably the best understanding is she ran to him and glommed onto him, holding him, hugging him, maybe holding his feet or something. Uh, very probably that's the best way to understand this. And, and what does he say? He says, he doesn't say, let's take a moment here and enjoy this. He says, no, we have work to do. I've got to go somewhere, and you've got something to do. So even though this is a precious moment, we have to move through this. There's this purpose. There's a time and place to sit back and relax and enjoy the moment, but now is not the time. There's work to be done. He must move on, and Mary also has a job to do. Look at how it says it here in the text. Do not cling to me, for I have yet ascended to the Father. He's, I, I, honestly, there's no magic weirdness here. It's just saying he is going up to heaven to be with his Father uh, for a few days. I, we don't know exactly what that's about, okay? But he's basically saying, I've got to go. I've, I really have to move on. You have to trust me. I'm alive. It's going to be fine. But for now, I've got to go. And, and there's a lot to life like that. You know, we are together, and we will be together, and our relationship is secure forever, but that doesn't mean right now we have the uh, opportunity to go you know, to a fishing cabin for, for two weeks. <laughs> we are now on duty. We have stuff to do. I'm ascending to my Father, and, and here's this beautiful message, kind of cryptic, interesting, but beautiful and inclusive. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Notice that in verse there, uh, this is verse 17, but go to my brothers and say to them that message. And then Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. From the other Gospels, by the way, we know that the disciples didn't believe her. <laughs> they thought she was talking nonsense. But she was faithful to be a witness, even in a potentially embarrassing and weird situation. And even when they didn't believe her, she's still a faithful witness. We should be taking points here, right? So Augustine called her the apostle to the apostles. She's sent by Jesus Christ himself to tell the, the apostles what was up next. Now, I want to spend the rest of my time looking at several scriptures on this. Why? Why is the resurrection important? Why is this history important to us? There's a beautiful linguistic note when John says, I, I believed. See that there in verse 8? Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. What's required of a believer? A believer, a believer. It's one who believes the Word. That's one who understands the Scripture. Do we all understand it perfectly? Don't you love it? You have a conversation with somebody. You know, the Bible's a great book. Oh, yeah, I read it. Okay, now I know you are not a believer. <laughs> if you say, I read it, you're missing the point, right? It's abiding in the Word. He expects us. He has these high expectations for us to love His Word, to know His Word, and to humbly admit we've forgotten his word. We've disobeyed his word. We need to repent constantly of not knowing and obeying and following his word. The scripture matters. Uh, we had a Good Friday service, and um, one of the words was, I thirst. And did you notice how it's recorded in the Bible? Our, our speaker mentioned this. Uh, Jesus said, I thirst in order to fulfill scripture. Even dying on the cross, it's, he has to say certain things because the Word of God is the ultimate truth and it must and it will be fulfilled. You can deny it, you can run from it, you can hide from it for a long time, but you are not going to erase it. And it is the standard by which all of us will, will be measured. Jesus says that several times. He says, I don't judge you. The Word will judge you. So it's significant that John, a lover of Scripture, a writer of Scripture, says they hadn't understood the Word. <laughs> they hadn't understood the Scripture. After three years of, of discipleship with Jesus, you think, okay, they're really mature. They've had the Messiah discipling them for three years. So I think there's a good helping of humility we should all take. But here's the punchline that I'm actually trying to get to. 
Did you see that, that last phrase? That he must rise from the dead. He must. It's absolutely essential that he rises from the dead. This is a little tiny Greek word. In English, we would just spell it D-E-I, day. It is necessary. And it's this wonderful communication. Look with me. Let's go on and take a little quick tour of, of a few passages. Look at Mark 8, 31. We have plenty of time. The brunch isn't for 20 minutes. So we could take a minute on, on the 20 passages I want to look at. <laughs> Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This was the purpose of Jesus. He must do this. It is necessary. It's the will of God. Day, it is necessary. Look at Matthew 26, 54. Matthew 26, 54. Oh, I'm sorry. Matthew's before Mark. I was looking after. <laughs> 26, 54. It says this, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Look at verse 53 in the context. It says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Okay, uh, there's a whole bunch of other references. I'm going to skip over them. You get the point. There's this absolute uh, necessity for Jesus to rise from the dead. Why is it important? The scripture had to be fulfilled. Uh, another way to put it is he must rise from the dead. The word of Jesus demands it. Here's some words of Jesus in John. Here is... Uh, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes, that's that present tense, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now I ask you, if he's brutalized, pulverized, crucified, dead, buried, gone, how in the world can he keep this promise? I'm the bread of life. And verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You can't do that if your light is snuffed out. How about this one? John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes, and that's those present tense, ongoing action. It's not so much that you made a confession of faith at one point in history. That's a good start. But it's are you following? Are you following Jesus? Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It says in 1126. Now again, simple question. 
if Jesus is brutalized by the Romans and he never rises, how can he say, I'm the resurrection and the life? If he doesn't rise from the dead, then all his teaching is worthless. John made that point. Excuse me, Paul. Paul makes that point super strong. I won't read it, but it's in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he boom, 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 lays it down saying, listen, it's ridiculous to say you're a Christian, but you don't believe in the literal resurrection from the dead. If so, why bother? He says, don't even bother being a Christian. You're still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, all of what we're teaching is a big fat lie. Uh, so don't go there, as Paul would say in my paraphrasing. Listen to what Jesus said in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus Christ is everything he said he was, that requires the resurrection from the dead. But look at the theological considerations of a few other verses from Scripture. Our salvation depends on it, and just really another way to say that, we can be free and live because of the resurrection. The resurrection is what seals our salvation. It is what we depend on. We serve a risen Savior. And here's 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Christ hasn't raised from the dead, if he has not come back to life, then we have no hope. We have no living hope. We have no future. We have no assurance that God has received and accepted the sacrifice for our sins. We don't know if the debt was paid or not. If you and I have to die for our sins, the Bible tells us that we die forever. Forever. We never pay off the debt. Uh, it's just compounding interest at horrible, horrible rates, and you'll never pay off this debt. It just keeps getting bigger and longer and horrible and unbearable. But Jesus is infinite, and he's perfect, and he can pay off the debt. He does, and when he says it is finished, that debt is paid. And he said, today I will be in paradise. He did not go to hell. He uh, went to paradise with that thief, and the debt is paid. The resurrection uh, assures that. Here's Romans 4.22. That is why, this is talking about Abraham, Romans 4.22 and following. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. He was willingly given over 
and he was delivered up by the predetermined will of God. In the book of Isaiah 53, it says it was the Father's will to crush him. Earlier I said he was pulverized by the Romans. It was God's will that he was pulverized, crushed for our iniquities. He was delivered up for our trespasses. And here's Romans 4, 25, and raised for our justification. So why is this important? What's the importance? of the resurrection. It is our salvation. We can be free and live because of it. Think of Mary Magdalene. She was eternally changed by the power of Jesus. She had seven demons. Again, I don't even know what that means. But she went from being the kind of person that you really don't want to be around to this loving, dedicated follower of Jesus the apostle to the apostles. She went to having her name recorded in the Bible as the very first one who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. She's honored in this way. And it's all because Jesus changed her eternally. He took her who had no hope and gave her eternal hope, a living hope, which was sealed by that empty tomb that day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus and our salvation through the resurrection. Thank you for giving us real, real people that we can understand some of their struggles. And Mary Magdalene is it's an amazing woman who'd been through so much hopelessness and horror and been ground down by her life and her experiences and compounding problems. Yet you healed her. You saved her. And she became a faithful follower of yours. I thank you for Mary. And we kind of look forward to seeing her one day and hearing what it was like to be the first one to cling to the risen Savior on that morning. And thank you, Lord, so much for telling us what happened, too. And you, you gave us uh, different narratives that include all kinds of different details and color and interest of what exactly happened. That the tomb was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead. They took from him what willingly he gave, but they could not keep him in the grave. They could not. He rose in victory over our sin. He, by death, crushed death. And what happened was there was an empty tomb and a real living Savior. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, prepare us to see him one day. We thank you for the why of the resurrection, that it is your love, your potent solution to the problem we often don't even admit, our own sinfulness. Lord, would you be so kind as to grant us repentance today. Grant us a heart like Mary's that will follow you and be your apostles, your missionaries, to tell your brothers the good news. Amen.